Hello everyone, welcome to Scotty on the Horn. This is a podcast where I invite experts from a variety of fields and discuss topics that interest me. Today's episode, we're very fortunate to be able to speak with Krista Van Slenderland. Krista is a PhD candidate at the University of Ottawa, has started a variety of different initiatives, including the Student Athlete Mental Health Initiative, as well as more recently the Canadian Centre for Mental Health and Sport. In addition to being an advocate for mental health, Krista is an up-and-coming researcher in the field of mental health and sport. It was a bit hard to record at certain times. We talked about some pretty heavy stuff, talked about suicide, different experiences with mental health, but I think it's quite important to get out there and I hope everyone can enjoy and take something from this episode. All right. Let's get to it. How's it going? Not bad yourself. It's been a while since we saw each other. I know. Yeah, actually, it's been probably since you left. I know. Four years? I'm going into my fourth year now. Yeah, that's wild. So where are you at now? You're in your apartment? Yeah, I spend way too much time here now. I'm starting to feel a little stir crazy. Yeah. Yeah, they've had some cases on campus, though, so I'm not feeling so great about going there. And the House of Sport is open, though, so I do go there from time to time. No, we're, uh, we've been pretty lucky out here. Like, we've been <clears throat> relatively unaffected by COVID. Nice. Like we, for the most part, have floated around, like, five active cases. We jumped up in the past month, but now we're trending back down quite quick. So, it's good. Is everything open for you? A lot is open now. I think we have our gyms. Or, I'm playing hockey. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So, we, <laughs> we go and... Uh, <laughs> We get dressed in the parking lot. I think they want us to like drive there in our gear, like, you know, back in novice when you were late for a game, <laughs> drive home. But we just end up getting dressed in the parking lot. And then you wear a mask until you're at the ice. You take your mask off, like you're in flip-flops. You put your skates on, go to the bench with your flip-flops and mask, drop them off, play hockey, game ends, skates to flip-flops, mask on, and then back out into the parking lot. So... You're just like sweating and spitting on each other during the game and that doesn't matter. Yeah, you can't catch it on the ice. So. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you didn't know? No, I didn't know. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's it's been good. But I mean, you have to, we have to stay, there's a lot of rules. So we have to, we're only allowed a cohort. So we're, we don't play other teams. It's just our circle of people. And we're like supposed to not bubble, really interact. Yeah, it's essentially like our bubble, our sport nice. bubble. So That's nice. Yeah. But then they end up with a bunch of naked men in the parking lot. So <laughs> you can't let hockey guys change or not give them a closed area because they just don't care. Well, like oh washed up hockey guys, yeah, like yeah. open bag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a bunch of soft bodies. Yeah. Amazing. So I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Obviously, this is a topic that is important to both me and you. So I thought it was a nice connection. You've got both the lived experience and the research side of it. So I usually like to start by giving sort of a brief history, going back, talking a little bit about how you got into sport and then how you got into research. And then we'll dive deeper into the topics of mental health. So I guess right. my first question for you will be, Growing up, you know, how did you how did you get involved in sport? When did it happen? What what was your intro to sport? Um, I played sport from a really young age, probably six or seven, mm -hmm. and like every sport under the sun. So I had two older brothers and was a classic tomboy. So a lot of like driveway basketball, played T ball. I was 
World Series champion on my T-ball league. Oh. Which is probably my <laughs> greatest sports accomplishment to date. Yeah. We went into extra innings. It was very exciting. Oh, nice. Um, and, yeah, I played rep basketball. And at that time, there were no girls' teams still. So I played on boys' teams growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one other girl I played basketball with all the way up until I left for university and we would sort of gang up on our own teammates because the boys wouldn't pass us the ball. So we would double team our own guys and steal the ball from them so that we could play too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <nice>. Um, yeah, <laughs> so that was pretty fun. Um, and then in high school, yeah, I played volleyball, rugby, basketball, obviously, and I did track. Oh, nice. Really, like a very diverse, oh, and I horseback rode too until I was about 15. So really oh, like every sport out there. Yeah. I was super lucky because yeah. like now I realize how expensive it is for kids to play sports. So like yeah. to be that fortunate, I was yeah. lucky to do all that. But eventually, you know, you have to choose just one. So I chose basketball, you know, maybe like grade seven or eight and okay. kind of went from there. Um, I was never like a great scorer. I was always the tenacious defender, but if you can defend, you're always going to get minutes. So I kind of lived and died by that. And it was only in university that I really became any kind of a scorer. So were you, uh, were you always tall or did that happen later in life? No, I was always tall, but I was always really skinny. Like people yeah. told me I probably should stop playing basketball because I was just too tiny. Yeah. yeah. But I made up for it with tenacity and there we go. Some grit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had the unfortunate uh, late growth spurt myself. I remember playing midget going into tryouts, and I was five foot three when I was sixteen. So really little, Scotty. Yeah, just a small guy. <laughs> the, the worst athletic experience I ever had. I was in uh, tryouts for a AAA team, and we had to do like a jump test. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I jumped and I hit the sticks, and like I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And then like we're we're kind of like lined up, like single file, and like you jump and then move on to the next thing. And then uh, the guy behind me is like six one and has a full beard. And it was the, the word, <laughs> it just crippled me. I was done. So he walks up to this jump test, right? And he stares me down. He doesn't even jump and he slaps higher than I jumped and just walks through. Oh my and God. I was just done. Like I was done. I couldn't, like I got on the ice. I couldn't, it was just in my head and it's out. Just God. annihilated. So whoever that guy was, you were mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We all have that person though. Yeah. It was brutal. Good on him though. Good technique. He got me out. Now I'm in sports psych. So I would like to think I could handle that right now. <laughs> so. I wish that I knew sports psychology so much earlier in life. I really could have benefited. Yeah. So you played for men's teams. When did you first enter the women's game? Was that in high school? No, I think grade six. um, One of the, yeah, one of the club teams in our area started a girls program. So from Mm -hmm. then on, I was uh, able to play with other girls, Mm -hmm. which is nice. Um, Yeah. And then I went to university and played for Carleton and then the university of Ottawa in that, uh, I thought about playing professionally in Europe, not because, you know, you make any good money playing women's basketball or anybody cares, um, but it was mostly like a way to travel Europe and continue yeah. playing another year. But um, I got a pretty wicked concussion my fifth year and that just, uh, I was not the same as a, you know, a player and I just, I was not functioning. So, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, now it was like, oh, come do a PhD. And I was like, okay, yeah. so, like, wherever the wind blew me, I, I ended up. Yeah. Okay. So we got your um, basketball career under wrap. I'm going to backtrack now, get your academic career, get that story going. So you were in high school. That was in what? Waterloo? 
you grew up yeah. in? Yeah. Water, high school in Waterloo. How do you choose Carlton? So, okay. Now telling this story, I feel like a dumbass. Here are my choices at the end of the day. McGill, Queens, Carlton. Okay. I have the marks to get into any school in Canada. I've been recruited to the States. I don't want to go. I don't think I'm good enough to play in the States because I have a massive like uh, confidence problem. Okay. <laughs> um, but also like, it was important to me to get a good education and I just felt like I wasn't going to in the US. Yeah. So I decided to stay in Canada, visit Queens, visit McGill, visit Carleton. And honestly, like I thought the basketball program was the best fit at Carleton, which is the most ironic thing in hindsight. Um, I probably should have chosen McGill at the end of the day. Queens, they had so many guards. Like I, I don't know if I would have, I'm sure I would have seen the court, but it mm -hmm. just wasn't a good fit at the time. Carlton was really defense centric and I loved that. They have a really unique, cool um, defensive system that you Ottawa and Carlton both use that's like unique, um, certainly in the university system. And I think now it's kind of permeated out into um, like Team Canada and the, and the pros a little bit, but uh, I really liked that. And uh, I wanted to do like something around development and being in Ottawa was a good thing. So that's mm -hmm. how I landed at, at Carleton. Okay, so you studied, uh, what was it? Your focus was public policy, focused on developing countries, looked at HIV AIDS specifically in Africa. Yeah. How'd you get into that? So you, uh, did you choose, was it like you chose Carleton first for basketball and then chose the program? Or was it a combination of, yeah, this program's great and the basketball's great or... I did look at the programs as well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I have parents with pretty high expectations. So like yeah. being in a good academic program was important. Yeah. And I always, I just, I've always been driven to help people. So I felt like focusing on developing countries was a mm -hmm. way that I could, you know, help others. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you get into the program and you start learning and actually feel like, okay, I actually can't help anyone because the world is pretty fucked up and, um, there are too many like big economic forces at play. And so I actually felt really discouraged by the time I, I finished that program, but it's been a really good base and I actually do a lot of policy work now. Yeah. Um, so it weirdly, you know, worked out, but uh, yeah. And I was always really interested in health. Yeah. It's funny that you, you would say that, that you came in super interested and then just got discouraged. That was my exact experience too with my undergrad. So I started my psych degree and I wanted to cure mental health problems, right? You know, like eradicate them. Like, yeah, I was gonna be I was gonna be the guy to solve it, right? So and then like the further I got in, the more I learned about success rates. And back then it was worse than it is now. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe this would be a good point for me to go back into my story on why. So mm -hmm. Maybe I'll, I'll go back in the, in the past. So for those of you who don't know, um, my experience with mental health was not necessarily one that I went through myself, but my father suffered from a variety of different mental health disorders. Um, his stemmed from kind of a catalyst event or something. So he, mm -hmm. he did not have any issues growing up. He had no issues in his young adulthood. But then he was coming back home from hockey one day and he was hit by a drunk driver. Um, in the crash, it was pretty bad. He hit his head against the windshield. Uncle was in the car as well. He saw my uncle pretty injured too. And the other driver was just crushed. The car was a Coke can. So saw a lot of traumatic 
things that night. And then that kind of spawned into uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which then evolved into depression. Then there was, I think there were some problems with the medication that he was given, which then triggered bipolar disorder. So he lived with bipolar disorder, I think for about two years before he eventually committed suicide. So this is, you know, in my heart, um, in my mind growing up, and this is where I went for psychology was I was going to be the person who was going to fix it. So, so no one else had to grow up, you know, without a parent or, or had to go through that suffering. Now I got very disheartened when I found out, uh, the suicide rate for people back when I was doing my degree, it was something like 60%. And then I also realized that I'm very, uh, I'm an emotional guy and I feel emotions and that if I went into like real pure psychology, that it was going to kill, like it was going to crush me because I I can't close off. (laughs) So, so then I, uh, I left and I landscaped and I did snow removal and then, uh, I had a little bit of a freak occurrence. I talked about it in the last episode with Jeff, but a prof found me in the bank, asked me how I was doing and then got me into sports psych. So I thought, Hey, if I screw up here, the results are just losing the game. So how old were you when all that went down? So the accident I think happened when I was seven. He ended up committing suicide when I was nine, I believe. And actually the timing of this podcast is pretty coincidental. So it would have been 24 years ago yesterday. So August 6, 1996. So yeah, I grew up, my brother was 11. My sister was seven. So three of us left with my mom to raise us. And uh, it was a pretty hard pretty hard moment for us. Yeah. What do you think the impact was? I mean, besides wanting to go into psychology, but like was sport helpful for you through all that? Uh, sport was, yeah, I think sport was pretty awesome. It's just a way to get away. And like when I play sport, I'm not thinking my brain just shuts off. So sport was great for that. A lot of it too, was I was exposed to some really good people. So my teammates, parents kind of acted as second homes for me specifically I had one buddy of mine, uh, Brandon Wild, I played hockey with growing up and his parents were just amazing. I lived at their house half the time. So I almost through hockey ended up with multiple parents instead of, you know, just having the one. So I had two moms and had got to have a dad. And then eventually we had a stepdad come in and yeah, I think a couple of few years later and he's been with my mom for 20 something years now. So, so that was nice. So I, I'll give a shout out to step parents uh, out there. Uh, awesome job. I just had a kid. I know how hard it is. So I'm imagine he was I think 30 years old, walked into a scenario with a seven year old, a nine year old, an 11 year old going through a pretty tough time. So yeah, thanks man. Martin. <laughs> yeah. Step parenting has got to be hard. I also have a fantastic stepfather. Yeah. Who, uh, yeah. I'm super grateful to have um, that influence in my life. So being a step parent, definitely not easy, but when done well, really has a huge impact. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was, that was uh, sort of my experience with it, um, which I guess I don't talk too much about. Yeah. I mean, I'm not shy about it if someone asks, but it's not one that I usually bring up, but I thought for here, I think it's important to share because a lot of people are affected and it's not just those who suffer from it themselves, but the whole family, the whole community ends up suffering as well. So yeah, I mean, it's not something you just throw up there like, Oh, by the way, my dad died by suicide. Yeah. And this is it. But I really so I have 
for yours can't see, but I have a semicolon tattoo and that's been a really great conversation starter. Mm -hmm. um, if you know about the semicolon project, it's like a suicidality movement for people who have attempted and successfully to, to die by suicide or who have survived um, like a loved one who has, has died that way. So it's been people either know what the semicolon means or they're like, oh, what does this tattoo mean? And then I get, you know, this great window to talk to them about mental health, um, which I really love. Yeah. Okay. So maybe this is, we've gone through sort of a little bit of your academic journey, your sport journey. Um, are you willing to talk? And at any point you can say, no, don't, like, that's fine. Um, don't answer that question or I don't feel like chatting about that right now, but do you want to tell us your journey? Sure. So as a child, did you know, or was it really something that happened later in life? Uh, no. So I, I was definitely an anxious kid, mm -hmm. huge perfectionist. Um, and I didn't know at the time that my mom was battling depression. That was something that my parents kept pretty hidden from me, but mm -hmm. I would say like my mom was around, but she wasn't present because she was battling depression and I didn't understand and I didn't know anything about it until I had my own issues in university and then you know my parents filled me in that actually you know this is hereditary and your mom has this too yeah so very very anxious disposition and then I think just the environment that I was in the sport environment that I was in um, uh, at Carleton playing basketball was like that was my triggering event or triggering place yeah I've really avoided talking about I haven't wanted to accuse anyone. I never want to like pursue legal action, anything like that. Um, but it was, a, it was a really abusive environment and I didn't understand at the time. Um, you kind of go in and you're seeing this coach who's like my parents' age, maybe a little younger. So I'm seeing them as a father figure and you're kind of expecting this person to protect and have your best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. And whether he did or not, the way that he expressed, you know, and tried to push was not healthy for me and, and a lot of other girls. So that, um, that and a few other events just sent me into like a very deep depression around my second year, but I was playing quite well. Like I started as a rookie. We uh, went to nationals for the first time in program history. My first year didn't make it my second year. And I remember at the end of that season talking to my coach and saying like, I, we didn't even make it out of, out of OUA playoffs. This does not feel worth it you go through so much shit during the season and like just the way you're treated. I was like, this doesn't make sense. It makes sense for the men's team because they're almost guaranteed to win a national championship every year, right? They've built that program, but we weren't in the same position. So going through very similar trials was like, why, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. So between second and third year, I started to get help and things were going a lot better. Um, in the summer, I started taking medication um, because, you know, we kind of determined this this is a clinical thing and you need a little help to get out of it. So started that and uh, but around November of my third year, the wheels completely fell off. So I was not really getting out of bed except for practice, was skipping a lot of class, not eating a lot, except for Terry's chocolate oranges. I don't know why. They're always on sale across the street. So it's just like we, we always get one of those for Christmas for my mom. <laughs> so I must have spent so much money on those things. <laughs> and cereal. Um and then at practice I would like start stepping out of drills, which is a big no no. And just you know, I was just kind of fading away. I lost my starting spot around Christmas and um 
I was really scared to talk about it because uh, of the way concussions have been treated and just injury in general. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're labeled as soft to go to therapy at all. Like even stuff that now we would understand as preventative medicine, like massage and stretching and stuff. Mm -hmm. That was kind of frowned upon coming with something taped to practice, like, no, you're soft. Mm -hmm. And people, when people were concussed, it was like, okay, you must be faking it. Like, why aren't you back yet? And it was this culture and we all played into it, myself included, like basically blaming this person for this thing we couldn't see. Why aren't you back in yet? You're, you know, you're letting people down. So a mental illness is the, you know, the same thing, maybe magnified as a concussion. Yeah. I didn't know how to talk about it. Teammates asked how they could help. I had no idea how I could be helped. And uh, I didn't really, I was never going to quit. I was not a quitter. So I was either going to die trying to finish my basketball career or someone's going to kick me off the team. And, you know, I was eventually <laughs> removed from the team. Well, that was toxic. Um, and just, yeah. Yeah. Basically kicked off my team. And at the end of that year, six other girls quit. Wow. And nobody really asked any questions. Mm -hmm. Some reporters did, but we were all, we were all still in school. We were concerned about our academic futures and whether the coach could influence that. And I think we were all just pretty scared to talk about it and didn't really understand what happened. So nobody really did. And I, the athletic director was aware, didn't do anything to the best of my knowledge. So that just kind of like, swept under the rug and the culture continues which was really disappointing but I didn't understand that it was an abusive environment until much later when I like sought therapy and and really understood what abuse is and that yeah the environment that I was in was incredibly abusive and that I you know experienced post-traumatic stress disorder following that yeah so safe sport and, and abuse in sport is now really close to my heart and I like that I get to attack that problem with the center and I always thought about, you know, how can I, what will be success for me coming out of that experience? And it was never really like, I want to get back at this person. Mm -hmm. I want to, you know, end this person's job or, or let, like just life, not um, in general, but career. But now success is like through the center, I can help people. And that is success for me. And that has been incredibly cathartic and, and fulfilling. Okay, so for those of you listening, so she's talking about the Canadian Center for Men Mental Health and Sport. Yes. Right? Sorry. So um, I actually wanted to ask you about uh, the center and sort of how, how you got into this, which is this is a huge feat and, and just even the logistics, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. It's just unbelievable that you, you were able to do this. Um, so can we, well, let's, let's rewind. You've left school now. You graduated. Uh, yeah, so I played for three years at Carleton and then spent my fourth taking like six classes per semester just to yeah. get the hell out of there. Yeah, okay. But finished my undergrad there, yeah. So then how did you get over to the University of Ottawa? Not on purpose. Um, <laughs> no, I applied to three grad programs in public health and mm -hmm. I just, I didn't have the grades. I had a B plus. Obviously, like I wasn't going to class. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's interesting in terms of how we evaluate graduate students you and uh, Jeff talked about being the lowest GPAs in Gord Bloom's lab and look, you're both profs and, you know, brilliant minds. So questionable as to how we decide who gets into grad school and who doesn't. Um, but I, yeah, so I was rejected from all three schools. And then I had been in the summer going to work out with the Ottawa team. And Andy, the coach called me at the end of the summer, like August. And he's like, do you want to play? 
I was like, absolutely I do. Cause I really just wanted to finish my career. Yeah. Um, he's like, okay, we'll find a, we'll find a program for you. I was like, great. Okay. Yeah. So I literally walked down the halls with like one of the, uh, one of the coaches from the team and knocked on prof's doors. Like, I think I went to Michelle Fortier first. Yeah. I told her like what I wanted to do and I had co-founded the student athlete mental health initiative at that time. So mm-hmm. there was like a tiny bit of clout there. She's mm-hmm. like, Oh, like, I think, uh, Nat Duran Bush is probably who you want to talk to. She happened to be there. Like I know now Nat's almost never on campus. So catching her in her office is like destiny. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, uh, we had actually met before through Sammy just to partner on some research. So she knew me already and decided like to take me on the spot which I now know it's just like yeah, I was so lucky you know yeah it's crazy yeah. So you hear that students out there random chance you can get that wait in a <laughs> bank yeah I actually there's a couple of points that you made there that I want to return to the GPA one is interesting to me because I do find that oftentimes the students and it's not always sometimes these are the people who end up being rock stars in the field, but the super high GPA and the hard worker, like they just have the genes and the work ethic and then they go somewhere. But I find oftentimes the high GPA people don't do well in grad studies because yeah. they're, not the, they're not the smartest anymore. They're used to doing a one draft and it's perfect. They get a 98. So then they submit their paper in and then they're told not nearly good enough, right? And then they just have a really hard time dealing with that. You remember like the first paper you got back in your master's? Because I just remember it was soul crushing. I was like, oh my God, I guess I can't write. (laughs) I wrote 28 pages and I said, here's my, I told Jeff too. And Jeff was in the last episode and he was kind of my mentor, right? So he was a year ahead of me. And I said, I'm done my lit review. And he just starts laughing. I'm like, what? He's like, oh, you'll see. So I submit the, I submit my 20 page, 28 page lit review. And I just, it's just blood on the dance floor, just red pen everywhere. And like my old supervisor was uh, very witty, like throw out WTS. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't a, this isn't a run out, run on sentence. This is a runaway train. (laughs) So then uh, end of the first page, it says, this is, crap stopped reading here 27 pages blank write it better next time submit 28 pages again same thing he goes next time just submit just submit a page so then i i submit a page then he does the same thing to my first paragraph he goes next time just submit a paragraph i go 28 drafts on my first paragraph and then he goes now you know how to write (laughs) and i want two drafts and then yeah but it was brutal it was so hard yeah. I did not understand what research was. I remember sitting in Nat's office and be like, how do you do a lit review? What is that? She just like <laughs> explained to me, you know, funneling. It was, yeah. I was such a, such, so green. Yeah. But I think it's interesting when you say like a lot of people who have really high GPAs in undergrad, like think about undergrad is a lot of memorizing and regurgitation of information. Whereas yeah. grad school is more about analytical thinking and you yeah. have to, there's not a lot of structure. And I think that's where a lot of people get kind of lost is because they're used to that in, incredible structure and you have to be really self-motivated and self-directed in in grad studies so oh yeah for sure for sure yeah so now like you're are you allowed to supervise students are you there yet yeah, yeah so i have three grad students right now so um, how do you choose your grad students well you know i'm not uh <laughs> i'm not a martin Camaray or a gordon bloom so you know 
I, uh, I try, I, I don't have a, you know, 60 people applying to me every year. What I try and do is I try and get internal interest. So I'll do applied and independent studies and try and get people involved in research. And then those who, you know, excel at it and like it, then usually we'll reach out and see. And I've had a mixed bag. So I have people who've done really well, who've won funding. And then I've had people like me who met the minimum and got in and they're doing awesome. So I've been fortunate with my grad students. I have supervised now a few undergraduate research essays and found like that's a good way for fourth year students to understand if they like research or not and learn what you and I learned in the first few months of grad school, which is how, how do you even do research? What is that? Yeah. So the second point I wanted to come back on was you mentioned Sammy. Can you tell me how you got started with Sammy? Yeah. 2014, we, uh, myself and uh, Samantha DeLonardo, who was a hockey player at the University of Ottawa, she was doing her master's in comms and was, uh, she interviewed varsity football players about mental health and stigma and help seeking. And that was really interesting that studies out. Jennifer Lennox Terrian was her co-author and supervisor. It's called Suck It Up, and I can't remember the rest of the title, but it's really interesting in some of the early work on student-athlete mental health. Mm-hmm. God, I can't remember how we got connected, but essentially she, I was the, you know, the champion, the person who was going to speak out and be, you know, had lived through this, and she had a little bit of research experience, so we got together, and I just noticed when I was going through all of that that there was so little understanding on the part of my coaches and my teammates and there's no space to talk about it so we really wanted to protect and promote the mental health of student athletes and have it be something that people talked about and was addressed Mm. yeah so that's how Sammy was born and that was the first time I really told my story was on our our website and the overwhelming response not just you know it's so scary for the first time to kind of tell your story. And I remember even, you know, my dad's a pretty conservative guy and he's like, don't do this. You know, you'll never be hired. And I know now, like, I don't want to be hired by somebody who won't hire me because of my, my history with, with mental illness. So that was a hard thing to do, but just the sheer number of student athletes who were like, this is my story too. Mm -hmm. I knew we were, you know, we were onto something and something else needed to be done. Yeah. So we actually did a study together I mean, there were some pretty interesting results. So we looked at mental health profiles of student athletes in Canada, Mm -hmm. right? And a couple of the findings that I thought really stood out was 18% of the athletes that we surveyed had a clinical diagnosis of a mental health disorder. Yeah. So that one kind of, I was like, oh, wow. You know, you don't, you don't expect such a high rate for that. So. Yeah, because people think athletes are invincible and, you know, they're the most healthy of our population, but 18 mm-hmm. is very close to the um, rate in the general population. Mm-hmm. And other research now has confirmed that. Well, the gen- I think the general is what, 25% of people suffer with about 50 having one episode? Yeah, 25% in their lifetime, 20% of Canadians every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, Scotty saved me on my, uh, so that was my master's thesis. And it ended up that I was supposed to be doing path analysis. Okay. And like, let me tell you that in undergrad, it took two tutors to get me a B plus in my undergrad stats course. So stats was not my forte and definitely not what I should have been doing. And Scotty, you tried so hard to teach me too. Like, and I thought I kind of grasped it, but I got absolutely crucified in my defense. Brad Young came to my 
like he was my savior. He's yeah. like, okay, let's stop asking your questions now. It was not a good time. <laughs> because I just like, I got it on a surface level. Yeah. But I didn't understand deeper and I couldn't answer those questions. And like, I don't think a lot of master's students are doing path analysis and no. SEM, but I definitely should not have been. <laughs> you did well. You did well. So thanks, but um, I'm a qualitative researcher now. There we go. So you mentioned how people are telling their stories and, and we've talked a little bit more about some of the prevalence, 18% there. When did you seek help? Like what was the, what pushed it or, or how did you come out, right? Yeah. So actually like as difficult as an environment as, as Carlton was, it was one of my assistant coaches, the guy who actually, I was sort of his little project. Mm-hmm. He noticed that I wasn't okay. And that was my second year. So he was the one who was like, Krista, I think you know to go see somebody. And that was the moment that I was like, Oh, I guess all these things that I'm feeling and struggling with are not normal because I just thought it was like, okay, I'm away from home. This is a new level of sport, a new level of um, academic stress mm-hmm. and this must be totally normal but yeah. it really wasn't so I went to Carlton uh, mental health like services on campus mm-hmm. told my story got all that out and the counselor was like it sounds like basketball is really stressful like why don't you just quit mm-hmm. I was like are you kidding like you don't understand this has been 20 years of my life this is not an option and I never went back obviously yeah. so that was another sort of impetus for the Canadian Center for Mental Health and Sport is that sport-informed perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I so I saw like a counselor and it ended up that I, I kind of needed more clinical help. So I went through quite a few psychologists before landing on the person that would kind of help me through the PTSD and, and the trauma. Um, and I think that's really important for people to know that like you have to shop around for a, a practitioner. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And also for the people supporting people seeking help that they may not get it right on the first time. And the same thing with medication. I think I'm on at least number three of like iteration of meds. Um, So it's not a, okay, this med is going to fix things for you. It might not work with your, you know, body chemistry. And so you have to remember that it's a journey and those supporting people with mental illness, like it's not a one and done. So it is sort of a, a longitudinal process that you need to be ready to support someone through. Yeah, that was the same with my dad where he'd be depressed and then they'd up the meds or change the meds and then that would trigger a manic episode and then you'd have to try and bring it down, but then it would go too hard down. And then, so it is unfortunately a a iterative process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then, uh, so you sought help. Was there anything that really, I don't know, was monumental in helping you or what changed to turn around? Mm. Well, the summer between Carleton and going to the University of Ottawa, I actually did try to commit suicide. So I think, you know, family, friends reaction to that was a little bit eye opening, but I want to maybe address the suicide thing for people because I think you don't get it. A lot of people don't get it, especially if they've never been in that headspace. And I've heard a lot like suicide is a selfish decision. You're not in a position to make decisions when you are that low you are not yourself and it's this feeling that you're in this like deep dark hole and there is no way out of it and it's really not about not wanting to live anymore it's about wanting this like deep pain to stop and that seems like the only way to do that so yeah it's not really a thought about others it's like it's chronic pain like mental illness is a chronic illness that you're dealing with and eventually sometimes it just becomes too much um 
So I don't, that's why, you know, it's hard to hear when people like, oh, it's a selfish, selfish decision. And it's really like you're, if you would, you tell a can someone with cancer that it's selfish of them to die on you. Like yeah. it's the same thing to me. So. And I think a lot of the headspace too that people will get in is they truly believe that they are being a burden on others. Yes. So at times it can even be a, a selfless thought because you're in that headspace and you're not aware of, I guess, reality on how people are going to feel. And you think you're doing a good thing for these people. Yeah, because you feel worthless. You feel like a burden to others. So it feels like not being there anymore is going to be you know, helpful to people in the end of the day. I've kind of thought like it's a strange, I don't know, a tough thought to think about. But if people could see their funeral and see how, how, like, how loved they were and how many people were rooting for them, like that would be something that would be you know, like beneficial if that makes any sense but I guess that ties into you said the reaction that people had right so yeah it ended up being like even if you could see all that mm -hmm. if your inside feelings don't match that and your own yeah. like self-love and self-worth doesn't yeah. match that like I think I ended up trying to be a little bit better for other people mm -hmm. and it was only when I started to truly believe that about myself that I was worth something and had mm -hmm you know, a life that was worth living that I actually started progressing like a lot, which was really only after basketball ended for me. That yeah. I could on that. Yeah. So part of it was being removed from a toxic scenario. Yeah. So even like you Ottawa was totally different. It was a really great experience, but just being in the basketball world was still really triggering, triggering. We played Carlton at Carlton. That was probably the hardest game. I did so much visualization before that um, just to try and not be, you know, anxious and panicked, but I don't really remember most of that game. It's like a blackout yeah. game for me. I think I scored like 11, like I played all right. Mm -hmm. um, but then after we just ended up in the team room and I just broke, I was, yeah. it was so stressful to be in that environment again. It was super triggering. So. Um, but I think once I could get out of basketball and get out of that sports mentality, which I think is often not very healthy, mm -hmm. that I could start to see what was toxic about Carlton and, and how that impacted me and how I could get past that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting what you were saying before, how you were told to, you know, basketball is not good for you and you should quit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The research we see oftentimes when you take someone who's played high level sport like yourself and you remove that athletic identity. So oftentimes the research will be in injury, right? Someone gets a career ending injury. And one of the things that happens is they become depressed, right? Because it's, it's, you're taking who they are and yanking that out of them. Right. So it's an interesting concept and to see that you went back to basketball, but in a different program. So how much did that impact you, the athletic identity? Greatly, I think. Yeah, it really was who I was. I think when you play at that level, uh, you have to be so singularly focused or you're not going to be good enough. So I really did equate a lot of my identity to basketball. And when I was at Carl Carlton, it was certainly a lot about my performance. And when I didn't perform well, that equated to me not being you know, worthwhile as a human being. Um, and because that was the message I was hearing from my coaching staff. So I think losing that, it was weird because like I was taken out of that toxic environment, but I was also ripped from any kind of support system that I would have had. 
and now I'm just a regular person on campus and it, it was it was very lonely and like just I had to reinvent myself but while I was still on that campus and on in that space it was it was difficult and I continued to train like I was still playing basketball yeah because I still I wasn't ready to let go yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. well it's interesting that you say that because I I always kind of use hockey as my social crutch. How do you make friends as an adult if you don't play sport, right? So if I, if I move to a new city, what's the first thing I do? I join two hockey teams and then boom, immediate friends. <laughs> so, so when you take that away, it's tough, right? Because your whole life you've, you've built that network and that social support and you know, those close and the relationships on teams are just so strong and so important and they're different, right? Because they, they get you. They know what you're going through. They know yes. They know the exact experience you're having, right? So. Yeah, it was hard to connect with people outside of sport. Just the mentality is very different. So definitely in that fourth year, I was really fortunate. I had a lot of great people in my program that really embraced me. But it just it doesn't feel like your whole self is being embraced because there was that big piece that was kind of left out of the conversation that they just couldn't relate to. Mm-hmm even in grad school, like I remember sitting in the first few days of class and I'm in my full sweat, sweat gear. Like, I don't think you've probably ever seen me in like jeans because <laughs> you left before I stopped playing. But like, I have cards from people that are like, look how far you've come. Like you, you wear jeans now and you dress like a normal person. But I was so still entrenched in basketball um, and everyone else is treating grad school like a job. And I was just trying to like play basketball and maybe write a thesis on the side. Yeah. yeah. So now I guess we'll, we'll come, we're back into grad school. So you've come in, you, you're, you're wearing your sweatpants. <laughs> you've got, you've accomplished, you've got uh, Sammy. It's a, it's a, it's a good service. How do you start a center as a PhD student? With lots of tears. <laughs> yeah. can, you, can you walk me through this? So what's the, what's the start? How did this even get on your radar? Okay. So near the end of my second year, my master's, Nat sat me down. I was not thinking about a PhD because I thought all I could do was be a prof. And I was like, I don't think I really want to be a prof. It doesn't feel like for me. But then she had a colleague in Sweden called Joran Kenta. He's on my dissertation committee now. And he started this mental health clinic for Swedish national team athletes. And that's all they do. They treat Swedish national team athletes. And Nat's like, I really want to open this, but in the Canadian context. And I was like, well, yeah, like I'm in for that. I don't want to do a PhD, but I want to do that. Yeah. So, and like, did I know what I was saying yes to? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Would I do it again? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm a, so for listeners, I'm at the very end now. I'm in year four and I've finished all my data collection and I'm just writing. But I'm in that like dark phase where you kind of hate everything. You're questioning why you did a PhD at all. And new people coming into the lab, I'm like, don't do it, man. (laughs) This is a long haul. Just go back while you still can. I was asking Krista earlier today about her education. I asked the worst question you can ask someone doing a PhD. Are you done yet? (laughs) So where are you? (laughs) I'm sorry, but uh, for the intro, just to properly classify you, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Get used to these questions. Um, (laughs) The meme account grad school sucks just embodies all my feelings. I'll go check that out. Um, Very cynical. Do you follow Research Wahlberg? No, should I be? Uh, it's just Mark Wahlberg memes about research. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've seen some of these, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Cool. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so the center, yeah. yeah. That was literally the idea. I want to do, that's like, I want to do this in the Canadian context. So from there, kind of figured out how the hell we we're going to do that. But like by the time I even I was defending my proposal, it was participatory action research, which is really just like letting other people make decisions and going with the flow. Yeah. Um, so like, I still didn't really know what we were doing. And uh, so, so what did you propose? I proposed to design, implement and evaluate a mental health care model within the Canadian Center for Mental Health and Sport. Okay. But I couldn't really describe it. I'm like, we're going to get a group of stakeholders together. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many athletes we're going to treat. I, uh, I don't really know what it's going to look like. But uh, yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So like, thank God I didn't have like a Martin Camaray on my on my uh, committee who'd be like, this is not sound methodology. Like you can't do this. You need to be way more rigorous than this. Um, <laughs> ben Wastegain, who's just like so interested in what we're doing and is yeah. such a, a great supporter. And then I have Joran from Sweden. So yeah. he's more on the like clinical side, but you have to be, I've had to be incredibly flexible and there's been a lot of anxiety around creating the center. That's a, that's a monster task, a monster task. I don't know why we thought we could do this, but we did it. I don't yeah. know how, <laughs> like with a lot of volunteer hours. So we started the center on less than $15,000. I got a research grant in my first year mm -hmm. and kind of spun that into um, having our first stakeholder meeting, designing the center. And after that, like it was really uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours of volunteer work yeah. on on the behalf like on our stakeholders part myself and Nat and just a ton of people and without, so maybe, without maybe having to name names I don't but who like stakeholders when you talk about stakeholders who do you who do you have involved so we have like academics from sports psychology um, we also have mental health practitioners who uh, you know be in sport and these are actually published publicly in my in my okay, okay. part of the par process and we, yeah. we actually had a contract between ourselves and the group of 20 stakeholders and mm -hmm. being named in publications as part of that like the shauna taylors of the world carla edwards is a sports psychiatrist um obviously ben was again from uh more of a, like sport management perspective and business perspective we had Joran kenta we had Zul Morali, who was the president of the Royal Ottawa, like research, the research wing of the Royal Ottawa. So just like a lot of great minds from sport, academia, and mental health kind of came together. Oh, Penny Werthner. Yeah. Um, and what I realized actually at the end of the day is what that resulted in was this hyper-focus on high-performance sport, because that's where Nat worked in, yeah. and those are the stakeholders we kind of had. So we sort of neglected the youth sports competitive level. And that's something I'm trying to work on now is really target those populations yeah. with marketing and comms. But yeah, so we did group concept mapping, which actually is a really cool method. Can you and explain it, a little bit? Yeah, it's like a participatory way of, it takes quantitative data and actually quantifies it using structural equation modeling luckily with a program, so I didn't have to do that, <laughs> and spits out all these different options. So it, it came out with frameworks of different ways we could organize the center and its parts. Okay, so yeah. at the end, we came out with this map of six key, I think it's six, six key areas um, stakeholders decided on. So it was like business policy and operations, comms and marketing, service delivery. Mm -hmm. So basically like the departments that you would have in an organization that's what we came out with. And the inputs were factors that they felt should be included in a Canadian Center for Mental Health and Sport. 
Yeah. Like that was the prompt. And then everybody inputs their answers. You boil it down to, we had 106 unique responses. And yeah. then the program will spit out maps for you and the stakeholders decide which map makes the most sense. And mm -hmm. uh, that was the framework for creating the center. And we went from there with smaller working groups based on areas of expertise, designed the service delivery model, hired a bunch of practitioners and got it off the ground. So where did the funding come from? There was, so I have never had Shirk funding or any yeah. kind of like support in that way. The funding was a U Ottawa grant for community engagement, which we kind of spun to our advantage to yeah. use that first meeting where we did the group concept mapping. The rest, like we've lived and died on private donations and, and volunteer work. So to this day, and corporate, corporate donations have been actually a lot more successful than getting grants. Yeah. Really have been really unsuccessful in getting grants. That yeah. surprised me because like I look at the PhD and I was like, how could you not fund this student? This is no. an insane undertaking. Yeah. Um, but I think my second year I got out of the school and was waitlisted. And my third year, I didn't even make it out of the University of Ottawa. Mm. So it's such, I don't want to say it's a bullshit process, but I don't know. It was super disheartening for me. I think the financial struggle of doing this was one of the most challenging aspects for me as a, as a grad student to pull this off. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned mostly by donation. So is, is there a place that listeners can donate to the center? Yeah. So we're actually a registered charity now, which means you can donate and get a tax receipt back. Okay. Um, nice. You can donate through our website, through Canada Helps. Just find our yeah, find our registration number. It's on the footer of our our website, and that's an easy way to donate, and you'll get a tax receipt. Okay, awesome. I'll put up the link for that. Also, for your time, I'll uh, donate a hundred dollars myself. And oh. one thing I'll do is, if this podcast ever takes off and I make money, any dollar I make from this will go to it. So that's, that's amazing. Thanks, Scotty. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, pump this out. Share yeah. the shit out of this thing. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So you talked about service delivery. Yeah. What's offered at the center? How how's it work? Okay. We have three pillars. So the service delivery piece is sport informed mental health care for athletes and coaches. And athletes includes dancers now. So we have quite a few ballerinas. Oh nice. <laughs> I hope Poppy listens to this. Uh, <laughs> why did you tell them that little oh, pa, Scotty? <laughs> Valerius. Scotty well, doesn't Poppy, Poppy's involved. She's a mass uh, PhD student at University of Ottawa. Kelsey wanted to go to the Nutcracker, and uh, <laughs> I said no a bunch of times, and then eventually I said yes. So I went to watch the Nutcracker. And I saw Poppy there. I didn't know that Poppy was a very accomplished dancer herself. And she asked me what I thought. And I said, you know, I'm not a huge fan. And like, to be honest, I thought they would be better athletes. <laughs> you didn't jump high enough. Yeah, I said their vertical is really unimpressive. <laughs> I was standing there amidst this conversation. I went over after him, like, Scotty, you know, Poppy was like a really high level ballerina, right? He just insulted her so much. It was the best. Uh, yeah. well, I'm expecting to jump higher. <laughs> like such an idiot. <laughs> Honestly, what a meathead comment. <laughs> Brofessor would have been a good name for I this. I know, movie. I was going to yeah. call this Brofessor, but it's not a good, uh, it's not a good look these days. <laughs> Yeah. Climate would not allow I'm just, yeah, huge meathead moment for me. So, oh, and Poppy, I'm sorry. I do appreciate the, the ballerinas. 
Um, so yeah, the CCMHS does consider ballerinas to be athletes. Yeah, so do I now, Poppy. <laughs> there you go. You've converted one person. Yeah. Honestly, I'm super impressed. The strength and flexibility and like grace to be a ballerina. I don't want to get into it with you because oh, I tried to do anything, I couldn't. <laughs> I can't imagine. So yes, ballerinas are are an athlete in our eyes and coaches. Um, I think we're gonna extend to to like high performance directors. Yeah. A lot of people in the sported men world that are kind of suffering in silence. So yeah, 16 and up at a competitive level. So we call it a provincial level, which yeah. really just ranges across sport. But basically like you as a junior, is it A, triple A, double A? Like all of those levels of hockey, yeah. those people would be eligible as long as they're more than 16 years old. Me, when I was in high school playing basketball, I would have been eligible. Okay, nice. Yeah. So we have athletes. I think our, our mean age, last time I ran the stats, was about 21. So we're on the younger side. Um, and we have all the way up to, though, our, we have national team athletes come through. We have professional athletes come through. So mm-hmm. there's a really, and university athletes, there's a really wide range of people coming through the center. And so essentially what we set up is a network of practitioners and all the practitioners have the dual competency. So they have a background in sport, but they're also registered in as a psychologist, counselor, psychotherapist. So there you're not going to get, yeah, you're not going to get anyone saying, well, I think you should probably quit sport. Certainly not off the bat. And they're situated all across the country from BC to PEI. And so we see people in person, but we also do a lot of virtual care. Yeah. I'd say that's the majority of the care that we provide is virtual. So everyone comes through the center. Poppy, the ballerina, is actually our intake coordinator. (laughs) Okay, so she's our care coordinator. She's the first person people see, and she is very well loved by our staff and people who come through the center. Actually, my research showed that she was like the glue that held it all together. So another big shout out to Poppy, and Scotty's really sorry about his viewpoint on ballerinas. (laughs) I'll put a link to all of Poppy's work too. <laughs> um, yeah, so we have this great, and um, we're also using collab- a collaborative model. So everybody's assigned more than one practitioner. They have a lead oh, nice. practitioner and a support practitioner. We weren't really sure how that was going to work in practice either. So we talked about my proposal and I was like, yeah, we're using a collaborative model and not sure how that's going to work. And how it's worked in practice is really like on a spectrum. Some athletes don't know who their support practitioner is and will never speak to them. Some athletes have seen three of our practitioners. They have three people on their team. And it really just depends on a few things. The complexity of like what they're dealing with. Also, it's one way that we can get around the geographical restrictions. So you might have an athlete who she or he is working with a psychologist who's not in the same city as them so they're doing virtual care but because they have had suicidal ideations and are maybe at risk of having like a crisis they want somebody on the ground in that city who could intervene in person and so the support practitioner is somebody who's actually local to that athlete okay so that's a way or if they they're kind of on the border of needing clinical support and like counseling or psychotherapy. We'll put a psychotherapist as their lead. And then there's a clinical support person. So the psychotherapist and clinical person can talk in the background. And there's just sort of like a sounding board for the lead practitioner. So yeah, in practice, the collaborative model has worked very interestingly. And I think it's actually a big kudos to the people who are on our team for being flexible enough to try to implement this. Because certainly training outside of sport is very insular and in siloed. So I think it was a big adjustment for some people to actually collaborate with others in a purposeful, meaningful way. Mm -hmm. 
been very uh, effective for sure. And we have a, an electronic medical record system. So that's one of the ways that we can share information between practitioners. I was going to ask you, because it's in the sports psych world, you typically will have your mental performance consultants who do not have a PhD in psychology, so are not allowed to treat psychological disorders. And then you will have the psychologist who did a PhD with a topic in sport who will call themselves like a sports psychologist, but may not necessarily know anything about kinesiology or the human body or much about the sport experience. So there'd be the psychologist who would call himself a sports psychologist, but the sports psychiatrist is one that I have very rarely heard of. So that's awesome. How did you find these people? Well, I don't, there is an international society for sports psychiatry. I don't know that it's like a recognized term in the entirety of the medical community, but I actually worked with a sports psychiatrist through my time at the University of Ottawa to try and get my medication kind of sorted out. Um, And that was my first experience. And I didn't know that such a thing existed, but she was an athlete, a varsity athlete, and then went on to medical school. So has a bit of a background in sport. Um, They're definitely few and far between. I think she's one of two or three in Canada. Mm-hmm. And just the way that, you know, the regulation of physicians work, having them internal to our team did not work out in terms of like fee structure and just the way it would have worked. So yeah. if somebody needs a psychiatrist, we will refer out and kind of bring that person into the circle of care and we can share information that way. The athlete's consent, obviously, but mm-hmm. as of now, we don't have any internal psychiatrists anymore on our team. Okay. So if I'm an athlete, I'm going through my sport, I'm starting to feel that I might need help. What process do I go through? Do I, I go to the websites? That's probably the easiest way. So we can, you can actually self-refer. And I'd say like 60% of our referrals are people referring themselves. Mm-hmm. So there's a self-referral form on our website. Or if you're like a coach or an MPC who's supporting an athlete, even a parent, there's also like an external referral form on the website where you can refer somebody else with their consent as well. And that uh, referral goes to Poppy and she's, she'll follow up with that athlete and and get the care process started. And we found it's about 11 days from the time that somebody submits their referral form to the time they actually assigned a team, which is quick compared to the public system where wait times are up to a year. So that's one of our points of pride, I would say. (laughs) Well, it's just a way to sort of circumvent that. And then those who are listening, MPC would be a mental performance consultant. And if you're interested in the care process and how it actually goes down, we published an article in the uh, case studies and exercise, sport and exercise psychology on that care process. So if you're interested in like the nitty gritty of how somebody goes through the center, you can find that. And is that on the website as well? I don't think it is. Okay, so I'll, 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 I'll put a link to that article. Okay, yeah. The fourth issue in 2020. Okay, awesome. All right, so as an athlete now, I've, I've submitted my form. Uh, Poppy has reached out, built a team for me. Is there a cost to it? Yeah, so the intake with Poppy is free of charge. The rest of care is a fee-for-service model like you would run into in private care. Yeah. This is sort of one of the things that I really want to change is being able to subsidize care for more athletes. We've been able to do it for a few, but because we are so financially unsustainable at the moment, it's not realistic for us to do on a regular basis. So We did just recently, though, get a donation from the Byron Family Foundation. So they want to support athletes in Western Canada. So we have six grand to allocate to athletes coming from Alberta and BC who need help and can't afford to to pay for care. So that's been really great. 
I'd like to set up a fund for like BIPOC athletes who can't afford care. So this, uh, this notion of adopt an athlete or coach is sort of one of the, yeah, one of the things I'd like to build in the next few years when we are financially more sustainable. When you say BIPOC, can you explain that? Yeah. So black indigenous and persons of color. Okay. We know that there are a lot of barriers You know, there's not a ton of research, but I've been part of the Black Canadian Coaches Association was recently founded. And so I've been part of their sort of steering committee and have sat in on that. And, you know, Black athletes, it's mostly focused on student athletes. They face a lot of barriers um, when it comes to like financial, just being able to afford to play sport and say they need a, a psychological assessment. Like if you need an ADHD assessment, you're looking at 2K. And that's not for anybody to, uh, anybody to afford. So that's something else that I'd like to work on. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a higher level, a higher prevalence too for indigenous Aboriginal populations of mental health disorders. So definitely something that should be tackled as well. Mm -hmm. We're working to make sure we're culturally competent um, and just to have a more diverse practitioner force. But we're, because we're looking at such a like a niche area where you're an expert in sport and psychology. Mm-hmm. First of all, there aren't a lot of practitioners of color in general in Canada. And then to find somebody like that with those dual competencies is, is really difficult. Yeah. So what's the next steps for the center? So because we're done sort of evaluating the model and I'm just writing that up, I'm really turning to sustainability mm-hmm. and looking at how we can about a year ago, I started looking at the center more like a business and less like a charity. Um, And that has helped get my head around fundraising and advancement. And honestly, like when we started this, I didn't expect to do any of this. Didn't expect to do accounting and budgeting and governance and running board meetings, like all of this stuff. I feel like I've gotten an MBA through this process. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it I really have hated. I hate finance. I, I hate doing our books. I'm bad at it, you know, but it's something that, you know, needs to get done. And I'm sort of the only person who can do it. So it's been a huge growing experience from the yeah. business side of things. And I've come to really enjoy the entrepreneurial piece of it. Yeah. But what I'm really trying to do now is to build out the community engagement side of what we do. So we've run you know, webinars and workshops on sort of ad hoc basis, but those are areas where we can actually monetize what we do and mm-hmm. have people pay for that kind of educational um, assistance. And so that's sort of what I'm working on now. And then we also do research, uh, which sort of funds itself. Most of it's driven through the University of Ottawa, but the community engagement piece is really where I feel fulfilled and where we can actually be a little bit financially sustainable. So the biggest thing that we've done to date on there is partnered with Sport Dispute Resolution Center of Canada to staff the Canadian Sport Helpline. Yeah. So that's a helpline that you can call if you witness or experience abuse, harassment, or discrimination in sport. So we um, we run just the the operator piece of that. The SDRCC does the the back end system, and we staff right. the helpline. Okay, yeah. I'll look it up. I'll add it here. So you've partnered with them. Have you thought about? Or has anyone gone into a, uh, what is it, or con- connection grant? Shirk has connection grants. No, we haven't done that. You might want to look into those where you, if you have a partnered business, mm-hmm. then Shirk will fund some of it if the business is willing to match the funding or something. Oh, okay. And, and then that gives you a bit more of a competitive edge because then they're, they're looking for exactly what you're doing instead of counting pubs and. Yes. Yes. So we did get a my tax. We're doing yeah. a 
study right now on just following Olympic and Paralympic hopefuls through one like Olympic cycle and tracking their mental health and, and looking at sport culture and stuff. So that was successful. I think corporate money is probably like, I don't want to say the low hanging fruit, but it's, it's probably the easiest to get yeah. if you, you know, find the intersections, if you find companies and organizations that might be sympathetic to this cause, then what we're doing is really cool. And people think, you know, they're really into it. So if you can find yeah. the right people, it's all about networking and who you know. So as an introvert, it's like my biggest nightmare. Um, I'm like, great, I have to talk to people. This is the worst. But I'm getting better. So when you uh, you talk about doing all the finances and all the spreadsheets and everything, did, did you have any guidance or was it just you were pushed in the pool and learned how to swim? Yeah, the latter. Yeah. Um, so Nat is not really like business is not her jam. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if I don't do it, no one's going to do it. <laughs> Do you have any advice for someone maybe trying to start a, an organization or something? Some of the potholes maybe that you fell into that could have been avoided? Lessons yes. learned? Oh my God. Um, your board is incredibly important and who you have on your board is incredibly important. So surrounding yourself with people who have skills that you do not possess is, is very important. And then I think what we're lacking really in our board is the person to make connections and network with people who are going to give generously to the cause. Some boards, like you're required as a board member to donate X number of dollars to the organization. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. And we're really looking for a working board yeah. um, for people who would donate their time. But now we're sort of entering a new phase of the business, if you will, and might you know need to shuffle who we have involved. But yeah, and I think being flexible to learn new skills and something I'm not good at still is delegating. This is like our baby. And I, I just have such high expectations and a high, you know, want a high level of work produced mm -hmm. that I really struggle to delegate things to other people, which would help me. So maybe yeah. being a little more flexible in the delegation area and just trusting people. Yeah. Awesome. Do you have anything else about the center that maybe we missed or uh, you think is important for people to know? I don't think so. I think we've really, yeah, we've covered a lot. I'd love to go back though to like grad school and this, this, you know, PhD experience and yeah, uh, let's do it. Let's get back into it. All right. Well, I've just, I've been thinking a lot about it and sort of, I really want to, there's a few books I want to write. I have like a few books in the works, but yeah. one is just about, the, the PhD student experience and, you know, connecting it to mental health and, you know, whether academic culture is really conducive to having positive mental health. And I thought about, you know, at the end of your journey, you're like, okay, what's next? And is professorship next for me? And I thought to myself, like, it's really hypocritical to study mental health and be a university professor because the model I'm seeing is a lot of like unhealthy workaholic, um, yeah, just a cult culture of overworking and burnout. I wonder what your experience has been as a both as a PhD student and how being funded changed that and then um, also uh, now Roth. Yeah, so that's a really, really good question. So in my master's, I came in and I, I didn't have the high GPA. And when it comes to external funding, at a master's level, it's almost entirely GPA based. So I didn't even have a shot. My supervisor said, don't bother. So yeah. I came in, I took student loans. I think I got an entrance scholarship that was $5,000 over the course of two years, right? And that entailed doing multiple TA ships. I think schools are getting a bit better now at uh, 
paying grad students and making sure that they have rights, you know, like to vacation, to, to other things, but it wasn't always the case. So I had no money. I actually had so little money. I lost 40 pounds as a master's student just because I found the way to save money was to not eat. So I got, I went from 210 to 160 um, during my master's. And then I went to Ottawa. Fortunately, the University of Ottawa has a base. So I did well in terms of GPA in my grad studies at McGill. But then I hit that minimum that I could get the entrance scholarship, which I think is 18,000 minus tuition. So that's something like 12, right? So I was living off 12, I think I was $75 a week in my master's. $75 a week. And that included rent, cell phone. Yeah. So just bare minimum. Yeah. And then I got to my grad studies and I think I was now living on $12,000 to $15,000 a year for the first year. Then I won OGS, which is the Ontario graduate student uh, funding, which gave me a little bit extra. Uh, Fortunately, Ottawa doesn't steal your entrance one. Oh no, it does. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. So once you get that, it's, it's 15,000, but it's non-taxable. So it's kind of like 17 something. So you, and then when you win internal funding, that makes it or external funding like that, it makes you more competitive for the future. So then I won Shirk funding in my third year. Mm-hmm. And actually the, I won the high uh, Shirk. So the 35,000 non-taxable a year. And that was a life changer for me. Yeah. It was, and yeah, it was just a game changer. So I actually just kept living off of, I said, okay, I'm going to pretend I don't have this. Like I'm less stressed, but I just saved everything and lived off like $15,000 a year. And by doing so, I had a down payment for my house when I finished. But I just said, I'm used to living very, very low uh, on the SES uh, scale. So if I don't go up, I don't know how good it is to actually have like nice things. So, so, so until I, you know, like don't buy a new bike that's better because you'll never go back to the old bike that was bad. Right. So yeah. the best bike you ever had that was a hundred and 200 bucks or something. Right. So I just lived small while I was there, but the funding makes, it made a huge difference. It was, it was a safety bubble, but you're right. It's uh, from a mental health perspective. It's not good. Um, you're actually, you're isolated all the time, uh, when you're working. And one of the things I was most scared of when I transitioned to be a professor was that I had to work in my own office. So I lost my lab mates who were like yeah. a team, right? So they were my teammates and that was who, you know, you spend 60 hours a week in there working together. Yeah. So it's not great because you go in these bubbles, right? So you do your undergrad, you're safe for four years. Then you're panicking. You don't know what to do. You get into a master's, you have a two-year bubble where you're safe-ish. Then you do your PhD and you have a four to six-year bubble where you're safe. But then there's no no guarantee. And then when you leave your PhD, you take a huge pay cut if you're going to, if you're funded as a PhD student and then you do a postdoc, it's a massive, massive pay cut. So you get a PhD and then they slice your income in half. So many schools offer 34,000 taxable, right? For a PhD student who was making 35 non-taxable plus what they, their RAs plus add all the student benefits for health and insurance and dentistry and all that. So it's a huge, huge cut. And then oftentimes you're working like in my PhD, I did 12 to 14 hour days. 
usually. So it's not that healthy. I created uh, the hockey league that still lasts at University of Ottawa because I found it was so lonely. So I wanted to interact and, and do something that I loved and give myself something outside of it um, that I could look forward to. So that was important to me. Um, I don't know that it was good. It wasn't good for my research, but it was good for my networking. And I got to have like something I love doing every week. So um, I, I would say as to those academics out there who are in grad school, you know, don't wait for someone to do something. Take a step and do something that's social that's going to help you and everyone else because everyone else really just wants that as well and is looking for the opportunity. So that kind of got me through my PhD was this hockey uh, league that I created. Did you ever feel like, maybe not exploited, but like a workhorse for this, like the system that is academia? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, again, like I said, my, my hours were insane. When you're doing 14 hours a day, every day, taking no vacations, you just know, I did it because I, so I failed in sport. Um, I kind of just did, I fizzled out. I was talent, very talented young, but I didn't like to practice and I didn't work hard. I just thought I was so skilled that I was going to be the next great thing. And then everyone who practiced got better than me. So yeah. I failed from sport. And then I took that high performance mentality and applied it to grad studies. And I just said, no one's going to outwork me anymore. So I would be at school before everyone and I'd leave once everyone left. I said, if I do this long enough, I'll get a job, right? Mm -hmm. But it's yeah. still, it doesn't stop once you become a prof. I was doing 100-hour weeks to start. Actually, before COVID happened, I was coaching 20 to 30 hours a week. I was running a leadership academy at the school, and I was teaching you know, two courses a semester and researching. And I was at the point where I was having, like, I'd say weekly. I, didn't, I wouldn't have a panic attack, but I could feel it coming. Yeah. Like, I would feel sort of my arms are up now the world just like pressing on my back and then I would feel the panic attack coming and I go uh oh just kind of laugh and I just run to the gym and work out and it would just put a week-long band-aid on it <laughs> so, so that was how I would stop it so I mean this whole pandemic kind of made me I had a new like a newborn daughter um, and then uh, you know being forced to stop doing all the, this extra work um, kind of put things into perspective for me. But yeah, it was not a mentally healthy thing. You know, I'm sitting there, I'm three years into my uh, tenure track and I'm fighting off panic attacks every week, right? Yeah. And like, that's the, everyone, what they don't tell you about with academia, right? Everyone tells you. And I still think it's the best job in the world because technically I'm working right now. I get to mentor people, I get, but there are some really bad parts about it that need fixing. And I just don't, I don't know how to fix them myself. And I don't know too how much is, is uh, me, right? Because I'm such a perfect, like perfectionists go into this, right? Yeah, and for sure. Like there's never been a person who said you have to work a hundred hours, but I just, everyone who's doing well you see how much they're doing and and you just think like i need to do that as well yeah right and then they give you no bar they don't say two pubs or two publications is enough or five right so then you don't know how many is good enough so you never stop working 
and they don't tell you any metrics so that you just keep pushing the bar yourself. Well, if I did five last year, I have to do seven this year, right? But no one's told you that, right? It's just you're I'm like, I'm my own boss and I'm the worst boss out there. So, Well, it just struck me. You just said, you know, no one tells you how much is enough. And again, it's that sports mentality where you're, you know, your value is tied to how many pubs you have and if you're getting funding or not. And mm. it's just, I don't want to be in that again. Like I'm done with that bullshit. And, uh, <laughs> it's, um, yeah. it's and, funny because it takes a high performance, like academia is high performance sport. And we all, we all know about early specialization and the problems. And what do we do as profs? We start recruiting first year undergrads now because then we can get them a publication by their third year undergrad and then they'll win shirk. Right. And then we, we create these highly specialized undergraduate researchers, yes, which didn't exist in my day. But it's, you know, we break that rule, then we know a lot about mental health, yet we break all those rules. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting space to be in. Um, although I do, there are things that I do love, like I love working with the athletes in the Leadership Academy, which is something I get to do. You know, there's the flexible schedule, if I'm not being a jerk boss to myself, it'll, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, there are a lot of positives, but um, there are certainly negative as well. Yeah, there's a lot that's appealing about academia. You're essentially an entrepreneur running your own lab. It's very yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, I think you can get sucked into that culture really easily. And this, you know, comparing yourself to others is such a trap as a grad student. And I found this especially because my methodology was so different. I'm not running an RCT. I'm not doing, you know, SEM. And so, like, my project was completely different. And Poppy, I, another shout out to Poppy because she's been like such a great sounding board. And I think it was just back and forth of Poppy, I feel really burnt out and I need to take a break and her telling me it's okay that you need to take a break. So just having somebody validate that it's okay that I can't work a hundred hour weeks for the next yeah. four years, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow because I am a perfectionist and do want to achieve um, highly, but then also living with a mental illness, it's not like less is sometimes more and taking a break means I can do better work later. So it's yeah. like, it's a different game for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm not in the exact same boat, but I've always had that fear because the fact that I know that my dad was yeah. bipolar and I like, committed suicide, I think the statistics are like, I'm 30% or three times more likely to have it myself and to do it yeah. myself. So I've always been cautious. So that's why it was really scary when I was starting to have those. Yeah. Um, and then also when I had my concussion in my last year in my PhD, that was pretty terrifying for me being in that pressure cooker scenario. When I lost my ability to think, I also hit my head as well. So I'm having this flashback and, you know, my dad hit his head and that's what, where it all went. And then I'm starting to go down that spiral. I, I'm socially isolated. I was, I wouldn't say I was depressed, but I was, I was having like some scary aspects. Like I would start crying like for no reason. Like I remember once I was listening to a podcast in my bath and like I would just sit in the dark and listen to podcasts because it was the only thing I could do. I couldn't, I couldn't even walk. If I walked the block, I would throw up. If I tried to do any physical activity, my world would spin. So like the floor would become the ceiling, the ceiling, the floor and horrible vertigo. So I'd sit in the dark in a bath. Right. And then I remember I got my phone wet and my phone stopped working. 
and I just uncontrollably just lost it. I couldn't stop crying. And like in my head, I was like talking to myself. I'm like, Hey, your phone's wet, man. Like this isn't a crying uh, scenario. Right. And I just couldn't stop. And so, so I, I, that was pretty scary for me. And then I'd lost, you know, I was no longer an athlete. I struggled on my way out, not being on teams. Then I became an academic. Like, yeah. and that's one thing that I would say, make sure as you're in school that that's not your only identity. Yeah. Because then when I hit my head and I thought I might've lost my ability to be a good academic because I can't stare at screens or read or think all that well anymore. I thought I'd lost it all. Like I was almost 30 years old. I was at the end of my, my academic career. It was, I was highly, highly, highly specialized at one thing and I couldn't do it anymore. So fortunately I got through that, but, um, I think part of it was that pressure cooker situation added to it too. Cause I was right at the end. I had no guaranteed funding and I had no job opportunity and yeah, everything I thought I was, I wasn't anymore. So that was yeah. a rough one. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny how you're, I see the patterns of sport play over again in the in academia. And I, I feel like I too took on for a while that like, okay, now I'm a grad student and this is my identity and just let it consume me. Um, but yeah, having a diverse interest is probably the best thing you can do as a grad student yeah. for your mental health. Yeah. Um, maybe not for your pub numbers, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 When we're saying pubs, we say pub publications, amount of papers that you publish in referee journals. But Basically yeah. your currency, which sounds really dumb actually now that we're talking about it. It's like a little piece of paper and that's your currency to advance yeah. in this field. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, yeah well, how, we're how, how many you've done. Yeah. So it's, uh, that was interesting. I mean, but the, the, the grad student uh, identity was good and bad for me. I guess the good one, I stopped getting in bar fights. And <laughs> that's not really something you're supposed to do as a grad student. <laughs> like, so that kind of helped clean me up a bit. I don't know if it was that or meeting Kelsey, but yeah. You think it's Kelsey? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I did get a lot better once I met her. <laughs> well, you set the bar pretty low for yourself there, but so. I know, I know. That's the, trick. that's the trick. Come in at the bottom and then work your way up. Yeah. You have to be inspiring for a lot of people though. Like no one, you probably never thought you'd be a prof at the end of the day. Oh no, for sure. No. Yeah. Like definitely. I always say like I, I wore an academic mask once I came in and then uh, tricked everyone and then I got the job and now I'm slowly starting to pull the mask off and just be myself again. So yeah. I think people will still like you with the mask. <laughs> You're an agreeable, agreeable person. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's a, uh, that's a thing though. I think the the academic world needs to work on it as well. It's not just sport and I don't see much support for um, no. people who are struggling in academia. And I remember I like, even with my concussion and like the concussion and mental health are very similar when I was concussed and I'm someone who does concussion research now. I got concussed and I didn't tell anyone and I kept working because I was scared that something might happen with, with my academia. Right. So I'm doing exactly what I'm telling athletes not to do. Like I'm saying, Hey athletes, if you're concussed, report it. It doesn't matter. Don't be worried about your future in sport yet. I'm not reporting it. I'm kind of being hypocritical, right? I'm not reporting it in academia because I'm scared how that might affect tenure if they find out, right? Mm -hmm. So I was teaching a class and I had like a haze. I could see like the students here, but I 
had this haze around the classroom and I couldn't see them. Luckily, I, that one was only a week. So, so you got another concussion during your first yeah sport? during my first year as a prof. I was playing just beer league hockey and had incidental contact. Just ran into a guy, but because I had such a bad one, now I'm more susceptible. Like yeah. before my concussion, that would never have impa- impacted me. But this one, I had minor symptoms for a week or so. Sure. But I was kind of I was scared, and I didn't tell anyone. At the end of the semester, I told the students. I was like. Do you guys know which, uh, I had a concussion during this. I said, anyone guess which lecture? And they knew. They're like, you were really? off. You were, were like, weird, that one. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. So You weren't thinking it so well. Yeah, it impacts your performance. So, yeah, they knew Long exactly thing. which lecture. Yeah. I'm like the same way, just I would encourage people to like reach out and get help. But, you know, telling my supervisor, hey, I think I need a week off or I need I, to extend the deadline on this thing, no, wouldn't do it. I had mm-hmm. such a hard time doing it. Um, yeah. Do, the worst though, too, though, is sometimes it's just, I think, in our own head, right? Where if I told my supervisor that I needed a week, I bet you he would say take two, right? But yeah. you're so scared to tell them and like you put it in your head that they're going to do it, right? Or they would say, what is wrong with you? Or think differently of you. Yeah. But there's like, for me, at least my experience with supervisors is that was not the case. If I, if I had, they would, you know, I remember with Gordon, Dr. Bloom, I told him, I'm like, Gord, I, I'm so poor right now. Like after a while, I just had to tell him. And then like, he found money for me and, and like went out of his way to like, and I try and do the same. Like, I'm like, if I can't fund you through school, like I asked my grad students, I'm like, I could stain my deck, but if, if not, like if you're interested or, or tell me if you need money and like, I won't do it and I'll just pay you to do it. And I'm like, and this is not me saying, I want you to stain my deck. This is me saying, if you are financially struggling, let me get creative. Right. So, cause I've been there before. So, yeah. I don't think like, like, so you didn't, I worked through, I had a part-time job for most of my PhD and that was, that's tough. Um, yeah. especially cause it, it was a totally different subject matter than what I was doing in school. Mm-hmm. So just having your head in all those different places is difficult. And the pressure to publish is real. And because I was doing a very applied project and working on the side, like my, I will never be competitive for an academic job right now even though I think I'd probably be a pretty great prof but yeah it's the same thing as getting into grad school they just they'll never even look at me because I haven't published enough so um so I think it's changing I actually do think that people are starting to see the problems with the count the pubs I have seen some people who have actually I know a prof who got a job with seven pubs Um, I know a prof who just got hired kind of in like a Université de Montréal, like UCAM kind of job. And I think she had five. So so there are people that are getting jobs um, in academia. Now you're not at the U of T, you're not at McGill, you're not in the research intensive ones, but I wouldn't give up if it's really what you want to do, because I think like this center and what you've done there is so much more valuable than the seven or 12 papers or whatever uh, that I write that two people read and uh, (laughs) and they're just researchers as well right so I think at some point there's going to be that recognition where 
the knowledge translation piece is more important than the actual publication numbers. I hope that that, yeah, I hope that that shift is, is happening. Um, because I think there's like an enormous power in academia to do a lot of good and apply the, the knowledge that we gain in, uh, in really meaningful ways. But if it's not something that we're rewarding at a systemic level, then things, you know, aren't going to change. So I do, you know, I hope that that's the case. So maybe I'll flip it now and ask you with your PhD. Um, you talked a bit about your experience. Any recommendations for people uh, who have done one? Mm. Would you do it again? No one would say yes to that. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't redo it. Oh, I think for like at least three years, I had a lot of good energy and I was really motivated by the center and I was doing a lot of different things like working part-time and coaching and you know, trying to run a center and doing a lot of work for free and just started to feel really undervalued at both my part-time work because I was doing a job that they would pay someone between 60 and 80 K a year to do like writing policy from start to finish for a huge organization. But because I have the title of student, I'm making, you know, $20 yeah. an hour to do that. So I started to feel like completely worthless as a human being. And then eventually it was just really tough to balance trying to open this center and yeah. doing all that work and, and have a part-time job. So I lived on savings for a while and then I was fortunate that my family could, you know, could help me. And for a while, like my parents were helping me pay my rent. And yeah. I know that not everyone has that safety net. So now I, I kind of formalized my consulting business because I've done a ton on the side basically just to get by and yeah. my hope is that if I can do this for another year and make the center sustainable and make that my full-time job that would be wonderful because right now I'm so like I'm not paid for any of really the work that I do at the center but I think it's a really important cause and I obviously don't want it to die and I've spent yeah. four years building it so that that's my hope for the next year I think comparing yourself to other students is a total trap especially because of different methodologies and just different ways of working some people need to take breaks some people you know I just I don't I don't think you can compare yourself as a, a PhD student I think it's natural to need to work on the side I totally didn't set myself up well like I didn't well I didn't think I wanted to do a PhD so I didn't publish my master's I think until I was like well into my PhD I had no pubs so in terms of like setting myself up for academia I didn't do a very good job but actually something so Brad is I love Brad. He is, Brad was Scotty's supervisor. Dr. Um, Brad Young. At, uh, Dr. Brad, sorry. Dr. No, no, I'm just saying, no, but call him Brad from now on. But yeah, from <laughs> University of Ottawa, if you're looking for him. Yeah, yeah. he, so there's a, a seminal course you have to take as a master's student. Uh, I think it's 6905. And Brad had, you know, historically taught that class. And just mm. the sheer passion and energy that he brought to the subject matter of sports psychology made me so excited about it. And all of a sudden I was learning, like my experience at Carleton was starting to make so much sense because of all this research in sports psychology. It's like, um, I'm not the weird problem here. This is actually all backed by research, everything that I was feeling. So Brad probably doesn't know this, but got me really excited to be in this field. And then again, he keeps coming back and giving me little nuggets of gold. Um, so more recently, it was about, you know, selling yourself to an industry, it, which is very different than selling yourself in academia, but actually realizing all the skills that you've gained as a grad student, yeah. like reading undergraduate papers, people don't know how to write anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know how to write, you know how to think critically. 
Well, there's all these little skills that you've, and just the resilience. I think the sheer resilience of finishing a PhD should count for a lot. Yeah. yeah. So just, I think, rethinking, reframing your graduate um, education as something that's marketable to people in, in industry is something to start thinking about as you, as you near the end of your, your career. I did the same myself. I actually applied business models to sport so that I could be marketable for executive consulting positions when I left. Nice. So I didn't put all my eggs in one basket. I, I did that. And then I went and I looked at executive consultants and saw some of the certifications they had. So I went and I did those courses. So then I got certified in that. And then I kind of looked on paper like one and then made sure but he said he gave me sort of the same talks on like how to market yourself and that was one of the things I think that's most valuable about graduate studies though is you get someone like Nat Dran Bush or you get Brad or you have someone who's basically treats you like a child like like their child not a child like a five-year-old or whatever but they care about well a good supervisor they care about you so much and you get five years of one-on-one mentorship from super impressive people so then you learn all these skills. They help point you towards the right direction. They help you work towards your goals. And I think maybe one point in that is be clear with your graduate supervisor about what your goals are so that they can, because they want the best for you. So they can help build your case for that uh, scenario. Mm-hmm. I think maybe setting boundaries too, which is you know kind of off, yeah. the, off the topic of where we are, but just setting boundaries with your supervisor. Um, yeah. Some people are lucky, you know, supervisors, they work in very different ways, but, you know, not wanting to get a text at 9pm on a Saturday that you yeah. need something done for a Sunday, that yeah. is a completely legitimate thing to push back on. Yeah. But there's a power dynamic there that you don't feel like you can as a grad student. Mm-hmm. So just remembering you have rights and you're a human being. And sometimes mm-hmm. like you're being asked for ridiculous things that you can say no to. Yeah. Um, Another one too is actually raise it because once again, I know even for myself, I'm a, I was a workaholic. I still am. I'll send my students something because I'm working at a stupid time. But the expectation's not for them to open it and do it that day. Like if I send them something on Saturday, I'm like, not get it back to me Sunday. But I don't necessarily write that in the email. I'm like, hey, here you go. I got your feedback. And then the student gets it and like, damn it. Now I got to do it today. Totally. No, as a super, like, just give it to me on Monday like, or, or whenever you want, right? Like, I'm just trying to help you, but I found a time where I'm not parenting or I'm not doing my, you know, so that's one. If you raise it, I, I'm pretty sure most professors will tell yeah. you, like, we'll be okay with it. And I think that's so important because you, you know, it kind of like when you don't address it, it sets this expectation, like, I must not be working hard enough because I'm not working at 2 a.m. So I better start doing that. And I, you know, so you're, because you're a role model as a, a prof and you're, yeah. you know, yeah. implicitly teaching your grad students mm-hmm. how they should go about working and being in the world. So communication yeah. is key. I think we've covered most. Anything else uh, that maybe we missed? I don't think so. This has been great. Thanks for sharing your story. I didn't know that about your dad before we, we chatted. So thanks for being open to sharing that and speaking so candidly about your concussion and stuff. That's, uh, I think it's great for people to hear. Yeah, well, thank you as well. I appreciate it. So one of the things uh, we did do was, Krista and I, do you have your shot or am I going alone? No, no, I got it. Hold on. (laughs) Okay, but it's not a B-52 because that's actually a huge labor-intensive shot. It is a labor-intensive shot. So so one of the things we did, my dad's favorite shot was a B-52. So we built one together. 
if anyone listening wants to press pause and take a shot with us, we're going to finish off with a shot for my dad. What was your dad's name, Scotty? Uh, Kevin Rathwell. All right, for Kevin. Kevin. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> There's no video. She took it like a champ. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what we'll let them all think. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Uh, no problem. Uh, it was nice to catch up. That was fun. And thanks a lot for sharing and everything you're doing right now. I think it's super important. This is a topic that means a lot to me. So I appreciate what you do. And uh, you should know you're doing good stuff. Keep up with what you're doing. <laughs> thanks, Scotty.